Hello, welcome to episode two of The WarPod, the official podcast of the Remote Warfare Programme, a London-based research initiative focusing on remote warfare, the trend where states support local and regional forces on the front lines rather than deploying large numbers of their own troops. The Remote Warfare Programme is part of the Oxford Research Group, Peace and Security Think Tank. I'm Abigail Watson, the Senior Research Officer at the Remote Warfare Programme, and I'll be joined by Megan Carshall-Peterson, the Policy and Research Assistant at the same programme, as well as Jen Gibson of Reprieve and Fiona Nelson from ECCHR, to discuss a recent court case in Germany and its implications for the UK. We recorded some of this podcast in an open space, and so apologies for any background noise. One of the dangers of remote warfare that we have highlighted in our own work is that it lacks the same level of transparency as conventional engagements. And so it is possible that risk-averse governments will use it as a means of avoiding parliamentary and public debate around their operations. This can create an unnecessarily antagonistic relationship between governments and civil society groups who, after failing to receive more information about UK operations through political routes, can use litigation as a way to challenge and make public UK actions abroad. Our recent report, Lawful But Awful, Legal and Political Challenges of Remote Warfare and Working with Partners, argued that if the UK government had a more constructive dialogue with the civil society groups, it would allow space for a more open and frank discussion about UK operations abroad. This could allow the government to justify and explain its operations abroad without being dragged through the courts. A recent case which highlights the danger to the UK if it fails to do this happened in March this year when the Bin Ali Jabba family took legal action against the German government for its support of US drone strikes in Yemen which killed members of the Bin Ali Jabba family. On the 19th of March this year, the Higher Administration Court in Munster ruled that the German government must take action to ensure that US respects international law in its use of Ramstein Air Base. Importantly, the court's criticisms of the German government's failure to discuss its support to the US even after so much was already in the public domain, holds an important warning for the UK government. To better understand this case and the implications it holds for countries like the UK, we spoke to Fiona Nelson from ECCHR and Jeff Gibson from Reprieve. First Fiona, can you tell us a bit about yourself and ECCHR's role both before and during the case? Hi, yes. Um, My name is Fiona Nelson and at the European Centre for Constitutional and Human Rights in Berlin we have been monitoring the issue of the use of armed drones for several years now um, as part of our work focusing on um, accountability for war crimes and other violations of human rights that occur in the course of counter-terrorism operations. Um, We started working a few years ago on a case of an armed drone attack which killed a German citizen citizen, um, in Pakistan in 2010. So we were 
active in that case after the German prosecutor decided to close uh, investigations into that death. Um, and on this particular case, we've partnered with Reprieve, who've been doing work also on this issue for several years and doing excellent work um, documenting drone strikes in Yemen and in other parts of the world. Um, so when it emerged through the work of some excellent investigative journalists that Germany was playing a very important role in drone strikes in Yemen and other parts of the world, we started looking into options of how we could make a sort of a legal intervention to highlight this role um, and to discuss some of the very important legal issues that arise. And can you tell me more about the specifics of this case itself? Yes, so the plaintiffs in this case are Faisal bin Ali Jabber, who is an engineer from Yemen, and two other members of his family, Ahmed Saeed bin Ali Jabber and Khaled Mohammed bin Ali Jabber. Um, the bin Ali Jabber family in August 2012 had gathered in their home village to celebrate a wedding. It was the wedding of the son of Faisal bin Ali Jabber. Um, and on the second day of the wedding celebrations, um, a drone, several rockets were fired from drones and hit two members of their family. Um, so Salim bin Ali Jabber, who was Faisal's brother-in-law, and Walid Abdullah bin Ali Jabber, who was Faisal's nephew, were both killed in that attack. And um, Faisal's brother-in-law, who was killed in that attack, was an imam in the area, who was very outspoken against Al-Qaeda um, in the area. And his family members sometimes feared for his life that he might get into trouble with Al-Qaeda um, and never did they expect that they would one day be killed by a US drone. So what caused the Bin Ali Jabba family to take this case to a German court? First, I might just... Um, so Germany plays an important role in US drone strikes in Yemen and in other countries in the region. Um, there is a US airbase at Rammstein in Germany, which is which hosts a distributed ground system, which is used in drone operations, and it also has U.S. personnel stationed there who are involved in the targeting process. They're involved in assessing the pictures that come from the drones and then passing on information about those pictures to the drone pilots who sit in the U.S. And so the the Ramstein in a way acts as a hub for the information flowing from the pilots in the US to the drones and back from the drones to the pilots in the US. And it's it would be it would be impossible, as we understand it, for the US to carry out these drone strikes without Rammstein. Um, because using relying on satellites alone would involve too much of a time delay. Beaming the the data from the drones back to Rammstein in Germany. Um, is quicker because you can then send the information through an undersea cable from Germany through the US and you shave a couple of moments off um, the time involved there, which makes all the difference to those strikes. So that was why, in this case, we argued without Rammstein and without Germany, these drone strikes couldn't take place and Germany played a key role there. As for the Ben Ali Jabra family, um, they have been active for a long time looking for acknowledgement of what happened to their relative, acknowledgement that this was a mistake, um, and they hoped to get some kind of justice through litigation wherever they could. Um, and the Bin Ali Jabbers also wanted Germany to take its share of the responsibility for what happened. 
They also wanted to put a stop to drone strikes like the one that hit their family in the hope that other families wouldn't have to go through what they went through. Um, and it was possible to take this case in Germany under the German Basic Law, which is equivalent to the Constitution. Um, Article 2 of the German Basic Law sets out the right to life, and that brings with it an obligation on Germany to not just make sure that it, by its own actions it protects the right to life, but also to, make, to take action to proactively protect the right to life in situations where there is a threat to someone's right to life that has some kind of a nexus to German territory. Um, and in this case, the nexus is given because Germany approved and tolerates the use of Rammstein airbase by the US Army. Um, and these constitutional protections extend in certain cases also to non-Germans, allowing the, the Ali Jabbers to take their case before a German court. Great, thank you. And so you mentioned before that the Ben Ali Jabber family has been trying for a while to take this to court. Um, and I know there's a history as well where they tried to get it tried in the US, but it was rejected as a case. Can you tell us more about why that happened? Yes, that case was brought in the US um, by Reprieve and lawyers in the US that they worked with. Um, in that case, ultimately, the Washington DC Court of Appeals decided that the court cannot decide on whether or not these strikes are legal. The court felt that this would be adjudicating a political question and so left it left this question within the discretion of the US government and the administration. Interestingly, the one of the judges in that case, although agreeing with the majority that the court couldn't adjudicate on this, issued a separate opinion uh, in which she set out her feelings that this political question doctrine gives too much deference to the executive that in theory Congress should have oversight of the drone program, but that in reality that's not really happening. And that, you know, she raised the question, well, if judges don't have the power to oversee this, um, to oversee the drone program, who will do it? Um, and Faisal bin Ali Jabra's efforts to litigate in the US was also the subject of a, a poem by the Canadian poet Anne Carson. Um, which appeared in the London Review of Books a few years ago, which I'd recommend that your listeners seek out. It's called Fate, Federal Court, Moon. And it describes a little bit the, the, the sense of going to a court in the US, seeking justice for something that happened in Yemen, and all, the, all that goes along with that. That sounds very interesting. I'll definitely try to find that. And why was this specific case successful? So what made this case different from many of the others that have tried to examine European support to US drone strikes, particularly the one that was held on the same day as your own court case, examining the relationship in Somalia between Germany and the US? So the case looking at the drone strikes in Yemen was unique in that its focus wasn't on the drone strikes of the past, but rather on potential future drone strikes. So the crux of the case was the plaintiffs in this case fear that their right to life will be in danger in future. They fear that they may be hit by a drone in future, um, given where they live and given the patterns of the past of drone strikes. Um, and that was, that's a key difference to the case that you mentioned that was decided on the day, same day regarding a drone strike in Somalia. So that case was looking backwards to a particular a particular strike um, 
And the court found that it was unsatisfied that at that point in time, Germany really knew about the role of Rammstein and how it might be involved in drone strikes in Somalia. And there was also some evidentiary challenges in that case. Um, the court didn't feel satisfied that the drone strike had happened in the way um, the plaintiffs had set out. And in the German case, at first instance, um, that decision was issued a few years ago in the, in the Yemen case, the court found, the court went along similar lines to the US court that we just discussed. So the court felt, yes, Rammstein is used in these drone strikes. Um, yes, Germany's obligations are engaged here. However, Germany has a broad um, discretion when it comes to how it wants to deal with this, especially given that this is an area of foreign policy. So very similar to what we saw in the US decision. And this is exactly the point that was reversed in this most recent appeal decision. So the court here took a very different view, saying that the question of whether or not certain strikes are lawful is a legal question. It's not a political question. A state, on the, a state doesn't have discretion when it comes to the legal assessment of these strikes. The state does have discretion, of course, when it comes to how it wants to deal with this issue. Um, and that was the key point in the case. Thank you. And so, as far as I understand, part of the ruling clarified that uh, the German government's previous findings, that there had not been any violations of international law, were based on insufficient assessment of the facts, and it was not legally permissible. Can you tell us more about the implications of this? Yes, so Germany had argued that it had got assurances from the US that all of its activities in Germany were in harmony with the relevant laws. Um, and Germany argued it had many decades of good cooperation with the US, the US was a close ally, and that's all it needed to do. The court said that's not enough. The court said you have to take into account also this, the evidence coming out of NGO reports, coming out of investigative journalism, coming out of UN reports even. You have to take this into account when you're making your assessment. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not enough to rely on official official information coming from the US itself. So I think that has quite important implications potentially for other states as well. Absolutely. And so this is the first case that's kind of determined that US drone strikes in, in Yemen are likely in violation of national law. Can you tell me more about what you think the implications are of that finding? Yeah, I think it's very important. Um, on the one hand, it puts states once again on notice about the assistance that they are providing to US drone strikes mm -hmm. in various different parts of the world in terms of state responsibility. Now we know that states need to undertake a thorough analysis of the legality of the strikes and satisfy themselves that these strikes are legal. Um, but it should also send a signal to all of those involved in planning, overseeing, carrying out drone strikes that the law applies to drone strikes. Um, they don't fall outside the law. They either fall within the international humanitarian law provisions or normal criminal law provision, uh, provisions um, and that people involved in unlawful drone strikes potentially leave themselves open to criminal liability as well, depending on the facts of the case. Um, finally, I would say that it is a reminder that drone strikes are not, as some people would like us to believe, a very precise surgical weapon. It's not a clean form of warfare, it's not. Um, and I think 
it's a it's a reminder to all of us to think about how do we want to, our our governments to deal with the problem of to deal with counterterrorism. Um, we need counterterrorism operations to be scrutinised by parliaments so that citizens can know what's being done in their name. Yeah, I think loads of what you just said then really resonates with our own findings from our report on some of these issues. I'm interested, especially coming from a, a, a UK perspective, what the policy implications of this ruling are specifically for Germany. So what what is Germany likely to do, given the case? So as we record, the decision is not quite final. It is currently open to the parties to appeal. So it may well be that Germany appeals the decision, in which case it will go to the next level in the administrative court system in Germany. Um, but the court did set out a couple of things that Germany has to do now. So the first is that the general assurances Germany is getting from the US, they're not enough anymore. Germany has to communicate to the US what its understanding of the international law framework here is. Um, and Germany's review of the legal landscape here must be undertaken on the basis of the court's assessment in the judgment, which was a very extensive look at the laws that apply, the prohibition of the use of force, international humanitarian law considerations, um, in particular the issue of properly limiting the group of people you can lawfully target. The court found that the US does not adequately distinguish between who it may legitim legitimately target, um, and which members of which groups it may legitimately target, so that will be part of Germany's review. And the court was quite um, court was quite strong in saying its efforts, Germany's efforts to date there were utterly inadequate. Um, the other thing that Germany has to do now on the basis of this judgment is to continue to monitor the facts on the ground. The court found that, yes, currently it seems that there is a non-international armed conflict in Yemen between the Yemeni government and Al-Qaeda, but that could change um, if the intensity of the conflict changes. So Germany has to monitor that. Um, on an ongoing basis. And as we mentioned, Germany has to take into account reporting coming from NGOs, from journalists, from the UN. Um, one of the points the claimants had asked for in this case was denied by the court. So the claimants asked that the court ordered Germany to prohibit the use of Rammstein for drone strikes. Um, and the court refused to go that far and said no. Um, there, on terms of the exact nature of how Germany wants to go about this, is open to Germany's discretion. So it remains to be seen how exactly they're going to go about this now, but it seems likely that it will come under close parliamentary scrutiny. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to jump in with a quick question there. So you mentioned this uh, review that they have to do of international law. Um, is that going to be public, do you think, or is that a process they're going to keep internal? It's okay if you don't know, I was wondering about the probabilities of them actually, because in the UK it's, it's very close down in regards to releasing information about this, and I'm wondering how in Germany if there's more transparency in regards to releasing reviews like this of international law. Um, yes, I think it's important that um, Germany's assessment of the legality is made public so that it can be discussed and debated and, and scrutinised and so people know what exactly is the basis of, their, of how they are dealing with this issue. Um, 
and I think that will f I think that will fall under what Germany should do to 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 publicly set out what it feels are the standards that apply under international law, and that's also very important for the system of international law mm -hmm. that states take a public position. So I would say that would be key. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I feel like we, we're going to have to get you back in a year to reassess what's <laughs> actually happened. Happy to. <laughs> and I think, I think it's also important to highlight ECCHR's other work in this area. So if you could talk a bit about what you're doing in other European countries around the assistance of them to US strikes. Yes, yeah, so currently colleagues at ECCHR are working on the issue of the assistance provided by Italy to the US drone program in Libya and potentially other areas. Um, the Italian case is interesting because the drones are physically stationed on Italian territory, on Sicily, um, but there is no transparency about what the basis is for the agreement between Italy and the US on this. Um, to what extent Italy has to oversee or authorise specific strikes happening in Libya. And these are key questions in terms of trying to determine is Italy's action here in accordance with the law. And so currently we are in the middle of freedom of information requests, litigation in Italy to find out what the basis of this is. Again, super interesting work that we're going to have to get you back for on a frequent basis. <laughs> But for now, thank you so much. This has been really useful. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Great. So it's really interesting to hear the German perspective on this and how the case kind of has implications for the policy there. Um, to hear a little bit more about the UK perspective, we now have Jen to talk about um, what's going to happen here. So if you mind introducing yourself and telling us a bit about your work for this case. Hi, I'm Jennifer Gibson. I head up our drones work here at Reprieve. Uh, Reprieve has been, is a UK charity uh, that also has offices in New York. We've been working on the drones issue now um, for, oh goodness, almost a decade, not quite. Uh, we first started investigating the drone strikes in Pakistan in 2010 um, and the drone strikes in Yemen shortly thereafter, which is how we first met Faisal bin Ali Jabba, one of the claimants in this case. We came across him um, during a press conference in Yemen and a meeting we were holding with those affected by the drone strikes, and he came up to us and started telling us his story. Uh, and we took on his case and became determined to try to get him yeah. some answers for both the strikes that had killed his family members, but also answers to why the strikes were happening in the first place. Mm -hmm. And am I right in thinking that you originally brought this case in the U.S. for him as well? So we did. Uh, we actually started his case um, outside the courtrooms. We took Faisal uh, to Washington, D.C. in November of 2013. We attempted to uh, meet with political leaders in both the Senate and also actually the National Security Council to discuss his case. Uh, those meetings did occur, uh, but he didn't get the answers he was seeking. In fact, after his trip, the headline in the New York Times was a drone victim met with silence during his visit to D.C. Mm -hmm. And that kind of, for me, sums up um, in one sentence the drone program to date uh, on the side of the U.S. Faisal then went back to Yemen, and uh, about oh, six months after that visit, uh, the Yemeni intelligence services tried to deliver bags of cash to him, and so quenchly marked U.S. dollar bills, kind of, here's the money, go away, mm -hmm. stop talking. Faisal doesn't want money, his family doesn't want money, they just want answers, and so he declined the money. And um, the following year, in 2015, 
uh, President Obama for the first time ever not only acknowledged a drone strike in Pakistan, but apologized to the families of two Western hostages who were killed in that strike. Um, uh, we then approached the administration asking for a similar apology. There was no apology forthcoming for the Pakistanis or the Yemenis, and so Faisal brought suit in the U.S. courts seeking just that, an apology um, and an acknowledgement that his relatives were innocent. Mm-hmm. And, and looking forward, what does this mean for the UK? I know you've been working on these issues for a decade and you've had similar cases brought before other European countries such as the Norcan case in the UK in 2013 or 2012. 2012. What? How is that different? What? What does this court case mean for the other European countries? Yeah. Well, I think it, it, it's interesting to note. So Faisal's case um, in Germany is very different from the case we brought in the U.S. So his case in the U.S. was very much about the strike that killed his brother-in-law and his nephew, Salman Walid. Uh, the case in Germany is all about prospective action, stopping strikes from further harming his family and other families in Yemen uh, illegally. The case um, of Noor Khan in 2012 um, has elements of both in it. So Noor Khan's father, Malik Dal Khan, was a tribal leader in Pakistan who was killed in a drone strike um, on March 17, 2011. He'd been leading a tribal jurga, which is kind of a dispute resolution um, gathering. And that day in question, the dispute was over chromite mines and who owned the chromite mine, um, which tribe owned it. Uh, the U.S. took, uh, fired several missiles that day and killed uh, 41 tribal elders uh, and individuals who were watching the jirga. Malik Dad Khan was one of them. And so shortly after the strike, there were reports in the newspapers um, quoting anonymous U.K. officials saying that they provide geolocational intelligence to the U.S. drone program for strikes in Pakistan and that they were proud of it. We then brought a judicial review on behalf of Noor Khan um, with our partners Lee Day and a team of barristers here in the UK asking for disclosure of the policy on which uh, that intelligence sharing was taking place and kind of asking, what's your policy for sharing intelligence for the use of lethal force? Mm -hmm. Uh, And in that instance, the court came back um, at the appellate level and refused to hear the case on very similar grounds to why Faisal's case didn't proceed in the US. The idea that this was a political question uh, that hearing the UK courts hearing uh, a case uh, that involved relationship with the US might embarrass that relationship, might embarrass the UK. Um, they invoked something called the act of state and barred effectively actions like this going forward where the UK is partnering with another state. And then sort of looking forward from that case to now and the the possible dangers that the UK can face. Do you think there'll be any looking over and reconsidering the secrecy that it now holds over its relationship with the US? Will it reconsider the dangers it faces based on the the case in Germany? The UK's position to date has has been pretty much neither to confirm nor deny what it is or isn't doing, right? We find ourselves in this kind of black hole of knowing things are happening but not being able to get any concrete answers as to what or where or how or under what legal basis. Um, It often uses the phrases, 
Um, so, it's yeah. a matter for the states who are involved, and, and you know, we're confident the action is being taken in accordance with the international law. Right? The UK can't really say that anymore. You now have a German court uh, and a German appellate court saying these strikes are illegal. There is sufficient <laughs> evidence now to indicate that the strikes taking place in Yemen carried out by the U.S., even if inside of an armed conflict, are illegal. They're not distinguishing between civilians and combatants. They're not, um, they're not abiding by uh, the Geneva Conventions and customary international law. That's huge, because it's going to be really hard from this point on for the U.K. government to say, well, we didn't know they were illegal. We didn't know the U.S. was taking illegal strikes. Um, it, the evidence now is, is is quite overwhelming, and it's very similar to why the court ruled the way it did in, in the German case, which was to say, you know what, in 2012, you may not have known this, but you absolutely do know now who's being targeted and that there are problems with that targeting process, and yet you continue to not ask the questions you need to be asking. The UK really needs to take heed of that. They need to think very carefully about whether more or at least some safeguards if they don't have any are put in place in that relationship with the U.S. and that the actions they're engaging in at places like Menwith Hill, a base right here in the U.K., are not making them complicit in the illegality going on in Yemen. Fantastic. And, and what do you think is the response from the U.S., um, both in regards to if you, whether you've heard anything official from them in response to this, the findings in the court, but also whether you think they'll have to change anything as a result um, of, the, of the findings of the court? There's, a, um, as far as I'm aware, not been an official response by the U.S. government. Uh, I think there's been kind of reports that officials say they will look into the case. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of how the U.S. behaves going forward, the U.S. needs to very quickly look at the changes to the rules of engagement that have led to a massive increase in strikes in Yemen, that have led to a massive increase a corresponding increase in the number of civilian casualties. We've seen a real safe, a real scale back under the Trump administration of what limited safeguards were put in place at the end of the Obama administration, and at a very minimum, those safeguards need to be reinstated and, and the program needs to be pulled back into kind of line and restraint. But more broadly, we really now need to sit back, and the U.S., I say this as both an American, and, and someone who kind of straddles the Atlantic at the moment, the U.S. and its allies need to step back and start looking at whether this program is effective yeah. and what the effects of this program are on their broader objectives um, in keeping both the U.S. and the U.K. Mm -hmm. safe. Killing civilians does not make the U.S. and the U.K. safer. Drones that terrorize entire communities do not make the U.S. and the U.K. safer. And secrecy certainly does not make the U.S. or the U.K. safer, and it undermines the very democracies we uphold as kind of beacons of light to these countries. And so the, we need a real discussion to be started around what our countries are doing in our names, how they're doing it, and whether it's really achieving the objectives they're setting out there to achieve. Yeah, and I think I think that moves the discussion away from the legal questions into something might be lawful, whether or not it is, is another question, but the, the policy implications are the thing that that sort of defines that whether or not they should be doing it. Is it even effective 
whether or not it's legal put into one side and I think it would be interesting to see if if you have any thoughts on what what the current efforts are and what the policy impl implications of this recent case should be in terms of what the UK should be doing substantively to address these concerns. I think the UK needs to start asking questions if they're not already and all the indications are that they're not asking those questions. Um, they need to start asking if they don't already know who's being targeted, what the rules of engagement are, where the intelligence is coming from, how the intelligence is vetted. What we see time and again with these strikes is that, you know, the this kind of old adage that the drone is the most precise instrument we've seen in warfare, that very well might be true, and it might be that the drone hits the X if you tell it to hit the X. But if the intelligence telling it which X to hit is wrong, it's regularly hitting the wrong target. And and that's what we see happening again and again, strikes being taken on poor and incorrect intelligence leading to the, the death of innocence, and then that mistake being compounded by the lack of transparency and accountability on who's been killed. And that becomes really critical for the UK government to understand better, because it also means you're not learning from your mistakes. Yeah. If you're not tracking who you're actually killing, and you're not taking on board countervailing intelligence post-strike, that says, I think you got the wrong guys, you're also then not correcting the intelligence sources that are feeding them, and the mistakes will continue. Yeah. And so the UK government, um, the UK government is heavily involved in this US drone program. Make no mistake about it, the Germans are involved through a base called Rammstein. The UK is not only involved through bases like Menwith Hill, but they are directly involved in things like tasking targets and having British special ops in the operations room in Yemen, helping identify targets, um, in embedding soldiers in units that might be taking strikes. We know, for example, they embedded uh, U British soldiers in US units to take strikes in Syria at a time when Parliament hadn't authorized those strikes. Um, so we really need the UK government to first and foremost tell the UK public what it is they're doing and how involved they are, and then start asking really serious questions about its, from its ally about what they're doing and how they're doing it. Absolutely. Great. Well, I actually think that's it, um, the questions from us. So yes, thank you very much for asking that. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you very much to both Fiona and Jen for that really interesting discussion, and thank you very much for all of our listeners who tuned in. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. For those of you who want to read more in depth about the topics we covered, we put links to our research and publications that we've mentioned in the episode notes below. If you want to stay up to date with the Remote Warfare Program and the Oxford Research Group's work, please subscribe to our newsletter by clicking on the bottom on the top of the page. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handles are at orginfo and at remote underscore warfare. You can listen to all our previous episodes of our podcast free of charge by following the link at the top of the page. We look forward to you joining us soon. Thank you very much.